I see there's a couple sitting in the back that we can say, and then there were two, and then there were three. Michael and um, Melissa are here with their little baby, Malachi. Malachi, Malachi, yeah. (laughs) You say it Mordecai or Mordecai? Mordecai. I say, so there you've got it, right from the lady herself, Mordecai. And so give them a clap, guys. We did have a white rose up here for you last week, uh, guys, and uh, we gave you a clap, so that's two claps you've got. But it's lovely to see you here and bringing your young family along uh, to be amongst the Lord's people. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. And Lord, we thank you for the wonderful songs, the redemption songs that we have sung. We're reminded from Scripture that we're to praise and worship and express our thanksgiving in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And Lord, accept our praise from our lips, we pray. For indeed you have done a great work. You have saved us, you have bought us, and you keep us and will never let us go. And we have a hope, we have an anchor. And even metaphorically we can say that that shoreline is Christ himself. The anchor is Christ. And so, Father, our hope is built indeed on solid rock. And so, Father, as we have given you of our offering this morning, we thank you for that and we, we thank you for giving us so that we can give back and we pray that you may use us to your glory. And as we open the Scriptures now, speak to us, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to be continuing our, our series this morning in First Timothy, and um, my text, uh, sermon is titled "The Faithful Keep Pressing On." And um, let us just read that section so that we can uh, look at what the Lord has to say to us. This is found in First Timothy chapter six, and we'll commence at verse eleven and read right through to the end of verse. 16. So 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. This is Paul speaking to young, younger Pastor Timothy. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. And you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And I'm sure the people of God can say amen to that this morning, right? Amen. I'm sure you know to some degree or other that reaching a personal goal or 
gaining maybe a well-paid position in your career or even winning a prize for some feat of maybe physical or academic excellence, most of those kind of achievements have always demanded personal determination and perseverance. They all demand that. They demand commitment and in many cases sacrifice. I was interested to hear the outgoing Premier say last night that now that he's no longer Premier, he will now be a better husband to his wife and a better father to his children. And being a Premier has obviously meant a lot of sacrifice as far as family life goes. But anyway, gaining these positions that I've described of excellence, as you know, they do not always end there. In other words, once you've reached the top of the mountain, then what? You will often find, and in most cases, then the demand really hits in. And in many ways, the demands that come to someone and to a person who has reached a goal, whatever that may be, is often more challenging and taxing than the original pursuit. Because the demand that we have is that we maintain our reached goals and, and keep our positions of excellence and, and live up to those places of responsibilities that we have attained to. It's a bit like the top rugby team, you know, the All Blacks. It's one thing getting there, but my word, it's difficult for them to stay there. But this is exactly what it is like for the Christian. By way of illustration, those things work. As believers, we have been chosen by God's grace through faith to be his eternally forgiven children. You know that. And now we are to respond. We are to live by God's power in the light of this grand gift of salvation, this mountaintop experience that God has brought to us. We're now to live in the light of that, which the Lord Jesus Christ has won for us at the cross, by the way. Now, this does not happen, right? Overnight. This doesn't happen overnight. But living set-apart lives, living sanctified lives, we must, we must, we owe it to the Saviour. And this is what Paul is reiterating to young Timothy, his son in the faith, in this closing section of this personal letter to him. And you can gauge, as we have read, the overtones in this section that this was... Paul's most personal message so far, it's a kind of a swan song to young Timothy. He wanted to pass on to Timothy personally what was most important to Timothy. He wanted to give Timothy something for his own personal spiritual well-being. And this tells us what was uppermost in Paul's mind as he draws this letter to a close, even to a climax as we see in that beautiful doxology that we have read at the end of verse 16, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 
And so what is uppermost in the apostles' mind in this closing section? That's the question we can ask. Let me tell you, it is Timothy's sanctification. Paul's chief concern is all about Timothy's ongoing day by day, week in, week out, year in, year out, his ongoing holiness. It is about Timothy living up to and giving attention to his personal holiness owing to the high calling of God in his salvation and in also his service to the Lord. Now Paul alerts Timothy to this and might I say to every born again believer here this morning he alerts Timothy by using five verbs that are written here as imperatives. That is, he writes five verbs that are commands. Commands to obey. And those five verbs come like this. They are flee, pursue, fight, take hold, and keep. There's the five. But before we dig into these commands, one by one, I need to mention two essential things that Paul is saying in this whole section. Just to clarify uh, one or two things. He's saying that when it comes to our holiness or our sanctification, same thing, or our lives lived as a testimony to the Lord, he wants to say that this is an active thing. You got that? It's an active thing. In other words, living a holy life, living a sanctified life, has legs on it. And there are aspects of living for the Lord that we're obligated to do. That's all there is to it. And we will see this in the five commands or imperatives that Paul gives Timothy and to every believer in this section. So living a holy and a sanctified life, it's active. It demands our involvement. There's no choice here. If you're a true believer, you need and have to be involved in this. Now, this is not derailing the aspect of our sanctification that we might call passive, if you want. That is, when, when God brought us into union with Christ. You know, as believers, we have been adopted into God's family. We've been set apart by God. We've been sanctified by God, by His grace alone, through faith. And we've been made heirs of God and joined heirs with Christ. You all know that. That aspect of a believer's sanctification, that aspect of a believer's being set apart by God, it's already happened. It's a done deal. And we have sung that the Lord will keep us and protect us. He will never let us go. That's a done deal. There's no work. We cannot work toward that salvific sanctification. The work is done by Christ. But now, now that we are saved, now that we are God's children, we are obligated to do something. And as God's set apart people, we are now to what? We are now to let... Paul say again to the Philippines, we are now to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who worketh in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's what we're to do. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. 
So there is an aspect of our sanctification that is, aspect, that is active. But secondly, there is another factor that we need to bear in mind as we press on and, and endeavor and pursue holy living. In the negative sense, we must avoid and flee certain things. And then in the positive sense, we must pursue and cling and lay hold of others. So there's kind of a positive and a negative, I put it. In other words, the writer of the Apostle Paul describes it this way in Colossians chapter 3. There are things that we must put on and there are things that we must put off. It's a bit like in a wardrobe, you know. Clothes that we put on and other clothes that we take off. Same deal. Those graces, the fruit of the Spirit we must put on that demonstrate a life in union with Jesus Christ. So keep these preliminary thoughts in mind as we look at these five commands the Apostle uses in our text. The first one is that God's people are commanded to flee, flee from these things. We see this in the first part of verse 11. Now, right at the outset, we see that this first imperative is addressed to, but as for you, O man of God. Now, the ESV and the King James Version have this correctly, and the fact that they cite it at the beginning of the verse rather than in like the NASB does. And they do this because the emphasis is man of God. That's who this is addressed to. Man of God. Now, the title of man of God, as you think about that, it's only used in the New Testament of Timothy. But it is very common in the Old Testament, right? Very common in the Old Testament. It was used of those prophets and those men that God used in the Old Testament to pass on his revealed word to his people. These men in the Old Testament were... God's representatives, and they were his prophets. And this carryover title of the O Man of God is laid here on Timothy by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's there to highlight his responsible position to restore truth and order in the Ephesian church. And I might say at this stage that as God's representatives, is what we are, right? As God's ambassadors, that's what we are, right? As his witnesses, that's what we are, right? I could go on here and use other descriptions, but I just want to get the point across. Every believer, man or woman, is rightly a child of God, a man of God. And so we can put ourselves under this umbrella. We're all called to serve him. And so here Paul calls this man and all of us to do what? He says, flee these things. Now, this was a no doubt in reference to the many things that he'd spoken of in prior verses, especially those things that the false teachers were reveling in. And we have discussed that in prior weeks. He was, for example, to flee the love of money, which we had last week. He was to flee controversial questions. He was to flee disputes about words and of which arise envy and strife and abusive language and evil suspicions. He was to flee those things. Now, there are always certain things that we are called to flee, folks. 
There is. There are aspects of living the Christian life that calls for courage and standing up and being firm, using the instep um, word there, standing firm. There are times when we are to do that and there are times when we even need to confront head on if needs be, especially when the truth of God is attacked. We're not to be wimps and to put a head in the sand and say, I'll leave that to the pastor or someone else. No, no, we are called to stand up. There are times when that needs to be done. But there are also things in this world that we are called to flee from. And the Apostle Paul uses this word. Uh, What he means is that we are to be those who turn our backs against sin or on sin. We're not to be people who dabble in it and who mess around on the edges of something that is dodgy. Or even to be indifferent about sin. We're to turn our backs, we're to flee from it. You know, a classic example of this is found in the Old Testament, and you'll know this story well, where Joseph, as a young man, as you know, he was sold by his brothers into Egypt as a slave and providentially he was employed by a man called Potiphar who was fairly well up in the Egyptian military and he was employed by Potiphar to take care of his own personal household business you see this in Genesis 39 but as often is the case when life takes a turn for the better, which it did for Joshua, Joseph at that time, by the way, because prior to that, he was rotting in prison. When life takes a turn for the better, testing comes. And sure enough, handsome Joseph's test came via Potiphar's lusting wife, who tried very hard on numbers of occasions to seduce Joseph into her bed. And as you will remember, Moses described how Joseph responded to that specific occasion, to when sin confronted him and came before him. Joseph fled from her seductive invite in such haste that her clutching hands that grabbed hold of his coat remained with her. And Joseph fled from it. You see, he fled from sin, and that, folks, is to be the same stance of every Christian, of every child of God, we flee from sin we run away from it we're called to flee, the Greek word by the way is, is fugo it's where we get our English word um, fugitive from and that is always fleeing the tyranny of sin you know what a fugitive does you might have seen that TV program many many years ago, fugitive, he's always you know, had to keep ahead of those who were on his case and fleeing from it. Well, that's what we are to be to sin. We're to flee from it. First Corinthians 6.18 Flee sexual sin. First Corinthians 10.14 Flee idolatry or, or, or anything that takes place of the Lord in our lives. 2 Timothy 2.22 Flee, same word again, flee youthful lusts which is not only for the youth, by the way, it's for old guys like us, to flee youthful lusts. You see, this is the stance of every Christian. 
Every Christian, this is how it should be. And so I put the question to you, how are we doing on this score, folks? How are we doing? Are you fleeing from sin? Are you turning your back on it? Second verb, God's people are commanded to pursue. We see this in the second part of verse 11. Keep remembering that these commands are all about our our act of sanctification, that is living exemplary lives before the Lord. And as Paul has commanded that we actively flee from sin, he now commands that we do the opposite. That is, we are to actively pursue. That is, as fast and deliberately as we run and flee from sin, we are to deliberately run after these virtues. This is what it means here. And they are righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Those are the virtues that we're to flee after. You know, some of us are real good at, okay, I'll be indifferent. Okay, I'll turn from sin. But we really drag chain when it comes to pursuing. So the first port of call in our pursuit is that of righteousness. So we can ask the question, so what is this righteousness we're to go after? The best and most simple answer that I can give here is to call to your mind the beautiful words of our Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Benji and Linda, for a week or so ago, were standing on this mount where Jesus gave these words. And so it'll be kind of extra vivid in in their memory. And he said, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after what? Righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. There's nothing that gives satisfaction than the righteousness of God which is found in Jesus Christ, folks. Nothing. You can hunt, you can go after everything this world has offered and you'll be like Solomon and come up empty. Never satisfied. So we're commanded here to pursue, that is, in the power of the Holy Spirit, integrity and upright lives that are what? That are in conformity to the moral law and standards that God has set down in His Word. That's what we're to pursue. You want to know how to live? You've got to read the Word of God. You've got to know the Word of God in order to know how to live as a Christian. Don't think it's just going to come over you like some embellishing light or anything like that. And the worst thing is, you can, is, to, is to copy off me or to copy off someone else. You need to go to the Word of God and then you'll get it exactly right. And so being in conformity to the moral law and standards that God has set down, that is the quality of righteousness we are to pursue. We are to pursue, in other words, in simplistic form, we are to pursue, as you all know so well, Christ-likeness in our everyday lives, not just on Sunday. We're to go after it in every area of our lives. Secondly, we're to pursue godliness. This is a word that is mentioned several times actually in this chapter. And it's an old-fashioned word, you know. Once upon a time you'd often hear of people being described, oh, he's a very godly person or she's a very godly sister. I don't hear it so much now. But it's a good word, it's a biblical word. And the word simply refers to a person who has a deep reverence for God that will flow out in a worshipping heart. It's a person that whose whole life, can I say, is characterised 
by thinking God's thoughts about him and after him. They're a person who really takes seriously that they are to pray unceasingly. In other words, whether they're in the car, at home, at church, doing the dishes or what, they are thinking God's thoughts after him and about him. He's ever on their mind and it will flow out in worship and praise. It's a person who offers to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's what we see in Hebrews 12 and 18, by the way. Their lives will be like that. It will be acceptable service. Folks, it's not, it is not who and what we are in public that makes us godly. It's not who or what we are, even at church, that shows true godliness. Godliness is a heart matter. That's where it begins. It's a heart matter that actively manifests itself wherever we are, wherever we go, and with whoever we are with. Let me ask you another question. Can it be said that you are a godly person? Can it be said that I am a godly person? Because this is what we are commanded to pursue. Thirdly, faith and love. These two kind of go together. I haven't separated them. They're like a horse and carriage. Or someone says like love and marriage, but that's not a very good metaphor. They kind of go together. They're inseparably linked. Paul often puts them together, uses them together. But as we look at faith, we see that it's... What is faith? It's a... It's a Confident trust in God for everything. Do you hear that? Faith is a confident trust in God for everything. Sometimes when we talk about faith, some Christians sink back to the time or an event when they raised their hand or whatever and had an experience and, and put their trust, so-called, in Jesus Christ. Okay, and they look at it as a past event. But no, no, we're to be characterized by faith every single day. It's an unwavering loyalty and trust in the Lord in His power, in His purposes, in His plans, in His promises, and His provisions. And that includes a building for us, okay? So be here next month, next Sunday at 9 o'clock. Because that will really show us and encourage one another how much we do trust the Lord. It certainly shows and tells us that that's why we need to talk to the Lord about everything. We must pursue this kind of dependent faith, folks. And then there is love. We must pursue this. This is agape love. This is agape here, by the way, this word. It's a love that, that we choose to engage in. It's not a love that we are given and, um, because, you know, when we're saved, the love of Christ is imparted to us and indwells us. But this is agape love. It's a love that we choose to engage and to put into action. It's not something that just floods out of us automatically by us doing nothing. It's an act of love. It's an act of love. Christ showed an act of love by what he did on earth and his life and ultimately at his crucifixion. His love had legs on it. And so must our love. We have to pursue this. It's a love that is unhampered and unrestrained and, and it's sacrificial. It's an all-encompassing love for God and also a love for other believers. 
even though they, you may not agree with them on every T that's crossed and I that's dotted. It's a love for people. It's a love that's clearly stated in the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 22. And you will know these well. I don't need to remind you, but I'll read them uh, for memory's sake. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There you have it. Faith and love. Do we pursue these virtues as we should? I've had to repent on this. I need to pursue them more. And I'm sure you do as well. And finally in this list, Paul ends with the two external virtues. This is perseverance and gentleness. Firstly, this word perseverance, it's not about digging your heads in the sand and remaining indifferent about faith and truth. It's not. Sadly, many Christians can do that. They say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, but kind of seem to be indifferent about everything have got no mind on any spiritual matter, cannot talk to them about spiritual things, you ask them about their Christian lives or whatever, and they're, they're... perseverance and gentleness. First, this word perseverance, it is, it's, it, it's not about resignation. It's not about just doing nothing. But it's all about remaining loyal and triumphant and unwavering loyalty toward the Lord your Saviour. That's what it is. Even, even if it means hardship and martyrdom, you will persevere. Steve has reminded us about the church, this very church, this church of Ephesus. And this is one thing that they were commended to by, for, by the way. Revelations 2 and 3. You have perseverance and have you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Paul persevered. Most of the apostles, by the way, too, pursued this kind of perseverance. This kind of perseverance enables a man and woman of God to stick with the task, to go the full distance, no matter what the cost. Too many people resign. Too many people give up. Too many, oh, this is too hard. Or I fell out with this person or that person or whatever. Or I had a theological difference. And so they, okay, I've got to get out of here. And too many of them end up not going to anywhere, not fellowshipping anywhere. That's a disaster. That's not perseverance. That's just disobeying the word of God. Do we actively pursue the virtue of perseverance like that? But then alongside it, we're to go after gentleness. This word has the idea of, uh, of being kind and showing uh, humility. Uh, you know, by the way, gentleness here is not weakness. You know, sometimes I love the... Uh, you see it in AFL, you see it in NRL, you see it in rugby union kind of something that's uh, caught the fascination of audiences and obviously the star players themselves. And it's usually the captain or the, or, the, or the second in command. They'll go out into the field. These are the big. You know, these guys have got attitude. They've got physical ability. They've got everything. You know, these are guys that you would not want to mess with. And here they are. They walk out on the field hand in hand with their daughter or their son. I love that. Here's these great big burly, muscular, able guys and yet they show that sense of gentleness by taking their child out onto the field. This is kind of the idea. We're to have our strength under control 
And we're to be gentle. And it's more to do with the man of God, the woman of God, understanding that the cause of Christ and the gospel, it's not dependent on our own abilities or our strengths or our expertise to be successful. It's not dependent upon that. We get this so wrong more than we really like. It's dependent on God and submitting ourselves to his will, his ways, even though to human mind they may seem quirky and weird. That's gentleness. This will also, being gentle, it will curb our angry outbursts when things don't go our way. You know what it's like? The man of God is to pursue this humble gentleness. It's an attitude of which the Lord Jesus said, this is what he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. So we need to pursue this quality which was a mark of Jesus. We come to our third verb and we see here that God's people are commanded to fight. We see this in verse 12. This third verb fight that Paul uses here, it's used in the present tense, by the way. What that means is it carries the idea that, it's, that we are to keep on keeping on and never to give up fighting. That's what this word means here in the present tense. And being a man or a woman of God, we are called into battle, folks. We are. I had to say in our materialistic culture, many Christians live day to day, week in, week out, choosing to ignore the fact that we as Christians are in a war. And what happens is, because of all the cultural trash and, and the pressure and, uh, and, and the needs to conform, etc. We become numb with that constant bombardment of the world and so much so that we end up ignoring the battle, the real battle that's going on. I was reminded of this just during the week. I was watching a documentary on telly about the Syrian refugees who, were, who had come into Turkey and are still there. And so what they'd done is they'd crossed the border between Syria and Turkey and, and they, the Turkish government have built a fantastic, one, probably one of the best in the world, refugee camps uh, for thousands and thousands of refugees. State of the art. It's really, really amazing compassion that the Turkish government has shown on these, on these refugees from Syria. Anyway, this journalist went in and was doing this documentary and all of a sudden he was ducking and he was diving and he was looking out to the, to the uh, horizon where, um, where he could see rockets being launched, etc., etc. Um, and, uh, and you could hear the thud, thud, thud of the, of the bombing that was going on and, and he was really frightened. He was really made aware that there was still a war going on and not too far from him. But you know what the refugees were like? Some of them had been there for a few years. Bomb. It wasn't an issue. You see, they'd become so used to all this, they'd become numbed to the sound of war, they kind of almost forgotten that there's a war going on. It's a bit like us as Christians. We can become numbed to the war that's going on. And, and, And we're... And where is a war, folks? We're, we're up against the wiles of the devil, we're up against the lusts of the flesh, and we're up against the resistance of a fallen world every day. Never get numb to that. 
Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We cannot, folks, and dare not be indifferent to this present and lifelong battle. We cannot. As Paul encouraged Timothy, he said, Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a what? A good soldier. A good soldier. Timothy, Paul wasn't going to let Timothy forget that he was in a war. To Timothy, uh, two, we are commanded to fight the good fight of faith. Folks, let us never be AWOL in this spiritual battle. Never. It's a war against the world and it's hostility towards God. And the world is hostile against God, believe you me. It's a war against Satan and all his hosts. And that means we're to put on what? We're to put on the armor of God through word and through prayer. We're to put on, the scriptures tell us, the breastplate of faith. We're to have our loins girded with truth. We're to have the breastplate of righteousness on. We're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of God's grace, uh, of peace. And we're to have the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, praying with all prayer and supplication. Now that is how we need to be armoured. And if we're not, we're ignoring that there is a war going on. In other words, we're to be battle-ready. We're to be arming ourselves with the gospel armour. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. Ah, oh, we think we've got everything against us here as far as the building folks. But look, just like that, the Lord can destroy whatever stronghold or whatever hindrance is stopping us getting a building. So we need to pray, okay? We're called to fight the good fight. Fourthly, God's people are commanded to take hold of eternal life. We see this in verse 12. And here is the fourth imperative that Paul uses. It's the idea of gripping onto something so tightly that it becomes part and parcel of who we are. A lot of people do this, you know. Remember Scrooge McDuck? Oh, he used to love reading his comics years ago. That's why he was called Scrooge, because he used to go into his big treasure and he used to this massive big pile of money. Then. He used to bathe and frolic in it, and uh, hence he was known, even given a name, Scrooge. He had such a love for money that his, his whole identity was about being a Scrooge. Some people are like that. Some people are like this in, in the Ephesus because Paul warned us about it last week. This laying hold of eternal life, by the way, in this command is not about Timothy making sure he has eternal life. It's not about that. Because he already has that by God's grace through faith, as we have discussed. This laying hold of eternal life here is, is more to do with having, having such a grip on the reality of eternal life that he already has, that he lives and serves in the light of that reality. Did you get that? Did you get that? It's all about the reality of our eternal God, your eternal God, our eternal home in heaven. It's all about the reality of an eternal hell for the unregenerate. It's all about the reality of the eternal promises that are in the Word of God. It's all about the reality of the eternal Word of God, all being of such a reality that our lives are gripped by them. In other words, 
having been given eternal life is a whole lot more than just a belief statement, folks. A whole lot more. It needs to grip us and we need to grip its reality so tightly that it governs every single area of our lives. Now, as you know, Timothy, and as each one of us here this morning as believers, have been called to eternal life. And Timothy, like us also, have made a public confession of that reality. Most of us, I hope, all of us who are born again have made that confession in the waters of baptism for a start, let alone just talking with people and telling people since and after. But folks, do we live in the light of that? Do we lay such a hold on the reality of eternity that it governs our lives, our decisions, our plans? The Apostle Paul says, that the man of God, what does he do? In Colossians 3.2, he sets his mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Why does he do that? Paul reiterates again in Philippians 3.22, he gives us the answer. Because you know why? The man and woman of God will, will lay hold of eternal life. Because our citizenship is where, folks? In heaven. Fifthly, God's people are commanded to keep the commandment. And the key to these few verses from 13 to 16 is centered around uh, this, set, this word here, keep the commandment. And we see this imperative as charged to Timothy. We see that it's surrounded by a description of God and Jesus Christ as witnesses in order to give this man of God, Timothy, an awesome view of who is holding him accountable. You get that? So what is the commandment that Timothy and every child of God is to keep? Well, I would suggest that it's a whole lot more than what we know as the Ten Commandments. It's a whole lot more than that. I believe this commandment here includes the entire word of God, which, by the way, Timothy was commanded to preach. But whatever this commandment includes, the imperative for Timothy and all of us here to keep it, that is to guard it and protect it. That's what we are commanded to do. Timothy wasn't only to proclaim it, by the way. Just like I'm doing, I'm not only commanded to to proclaim the word of God, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, because this is way above human ability, he was to guard and keep the truth entrusted to him. Then in order to encourage Timothy to persevere, no matter what the cost, to keep the commandment, to protect the truth entrusted to him, What Paul does, he summons two sovereign and supreme persons who will hold him accountable. The first one is Paul summons God the Father, whom he describes in this way. He describes him as the one who has made everything, the one who gives life to everything. He is also the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and the one who dwells in unapproachable light, who no man 
has seen or can see. Wow! Paul, in effect, is saying to Timothy, Timothy, every man and every woman of God, listen to this. This is the one. It is the Father's presence that you live and that you breathe and that you serve and that you minister in. You're not to be a self-pleaser. You're not to be a man-pleaser. But you are to be, in every sense of the word, a God-pleaser. For he, why, witnesses your every moment. So keep the commandment. Now, folks, if there was ever motivation to keep the commandment, I would suggest that here it is. There is none better motivation, there's no better motivation than a biblical vision of the greatness and glory and the majesty and the immensity of God. Folks, we ought to be trembling before him. Witness number one, witness number two. He summons Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this witness testified a good confession before Pontius Pilate. You think, why mention Pontius Pilate? This is way back. Can I suggest that the Lord Jesus, in the most testing hour of his life, when there he stood before Pontius Pilate, Jesus is the supreme example of one who held fast to his confession and remained faithful to the word of God no matter what the cost. This was it. My dear people, you may well be going through tough times here this morning. I don't know all the intricacies of your life. You may be weary on the journey of life. You may be having setback after setback after setback. You may be hurting, you may be grieving, or even just plain tired of fighting the good fight. My answer is, then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Paul is saying, look to Jesus, who made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. The agonies of his trial, his sufferings, his buffeting, his scourging, the ridicule that he received as he went willingly and obediently to the cross to die for sinners. Let this vision be the supreme example of Jesus Christ for the times you're going through. He stands with you to encourage you in this battle of life. But then you might say, but I can't go on as I'm weak and my history shows that I so often fail. Join the club. Join the club. And Paul would say, then you draw your strength from him who is the sovereign and who sits upon the throne and, and, and who can do exceedingly abundantly all that we ask or can ever think. You draw your strength from him. But how long must I be engaged in this weary battle, you may ask? How long must I pursue and, and struggle to lay hold of this eternal life? How, how long must I, I, I keep fleeing and turning my back against sin that tempts me and, and floods me and, and confronts me? How long? 
Paul says clearly in verse 14, until Jesus comes, until Jesus returns. There's no respite here, folks. There's no time for going AWOL. There's no time to be indifferent. We keep on pressing on until Jesus comes. That's our mission, amen? To be sanctified by the truth of God's word, we are always to be fleeing, laying hold, engaging in a warfare, and keeping the commandment of God. And may the Lord give us strength and empower us by his spirit to persevere to the end, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we are humbled and we tremble before you this morning. Because Father, heaven itself watches. You watch the Son who was one with you at your right hand, who has been tested in all points as we, watching us. But not watching us to judge us, watching us to encourage us and to stir us on and to help us keeping on, keeping on. Oh, Father, we are weak in the flesh. Empower us by your Spirit. Help us to read your Word with understanding and clarity of mind and stir us up so that we will engage in the battle. That we'll obey these commands that we have read like never we have before. Help us to pursue righteousness and those graces of the Spirit of God that we have within us. We have everything that we need to please you in how and in what you made us for. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to you in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.